Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to an espionage episode of the Great War Channel podcast. What are we spying about today, Jesse? Well, uh, I do have some experience with spy-related things, having previously worked at a Cold War museum. But man, this one may just take the prize for degree of uh, complexity. We are talking today about the Lockhart plot, which I did not know much about, in spite how much reading and research and writing I've been doing about the Russian Civil War the past couple of years. But this underneath-the-surface intrigue of British spies uh, kind of waging a behind-the-scenes struggle with the Cheka uh, is, is amazing, I have to say. It's like the peak complexity, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, you know, even in normal Russian Civil War history, uh, it's the cherry on top. I also think it's the kind of story, if you, hand, if, if you would give this book to, to a producer in Hollywood, and say, this is my draft for my script, you would give it back to you and say, like, this is highly improbable. <laughs> you need to make this more plausible. <laughs> Seriously, this is too, too, uh, too convoluted. There's, you know, a woman aristocrat having affairs with people, supposedly potentially spying for multiple different sides, etc., etc., etc. So... Um, no, it's a fascinating story. The T.E. Lawrence of the Russian Revolution, as we uh, will discuss a little bit about that comparison and why uh, Dr. Schneer, the author of the book, uh, that it's, thought that it was an interesting one to make. So yeah, I have to say it was an eye-opener for me and definitely no shortage of uh, surprises as uh, the pages get turned. Yeah, I would even say... This might be something that we need to lock down for maybe having a potential video about it, though, because every all of it happens so secretly, it would be quite difficult to do so. So, but without further annoying you and keeping you waiting for this exciting story, here is the interview. So today, as usual, I am pleased to welcome our guest uh, for the podcast, and it's a bit of a foray into the unknown for me, uh, which is going to be fun. Today we've got as our guest Dr. Jonathan Schneer, who is, the, who is a professor emeritus at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and for us today, of course, of direct relevance, he's the author of a book called The Lockhart Plot. Love, Betrayal, Assassination, and Counter-Revolution in Lenin's Russia. So that's a whole lot packed into that title, and we will dive into the different parts of it. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Schneer, for uh, joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. I'm delighted uh, that you asked me. 
All right. So, first of all, for our listeners uh, who might not be familiar with the Lockhart pl plot, as I admit, I wasn't particularly familiar with it before learning about your, your book and having a look. Can you give us the sort of uh, quick and dirty summary? What is the Lockhart plot and what are the British trying to achieve in uh, Bolshevik Russia, essentially? The... British Prime Minister in 1918, David Lloyd George, sent a young Scottish man named Robert Hamilton Bruce Lockhart to Russia, January, the end of January 1918. He was not a diplomat per se. He had been a consular official, um, but he was not an ambassador. He was not a consular official this time. He was called a British agent. And his mission was to make contact with the new Bolshevik regime and to persuade it to stay in the war against Germany. If the Bolsheviks insisted on getting out of the war, his mission was to persuade them to make a peace that did not hurt British interests. So Lockhart got to Russia and he met with Trotsky, uh, who was the foreign commissar. Um, and he quickly realized that the Bolsheviks were going to get out of the war. And what was more, that they did not distinguish between British imperialists and German imperialists um, and would not make uh, a peace with British interests in mind. And so what was a British agent to do? And the answer is he began to develop a Lockhart plot. And the Lockhart plot was in fact a conspiracy to overthrow the Bolsheviks, to murder Lenin and Trotsky, and to install a regime that either would recommence the war on the Eastern Front for Germany, uh, or at least keep British interests in mind. That is a very quick and dirty um, uh, answer to your question. It's much more complicated than that. No doubt, but uh, that's extremely that is extremely intriguing, I have to say. And before we sort of get deeper into that, now that uh, we sort of have a hint of of what the the story is about here, take us back to your decision to plunge into this yourself, because you've written in the past on quite different topics to this um, British labor history, Middle East the British cabinet in World War II. What brought you to the wastelands, so to speak, of, of Bolshevik Russia and the intrigues sort of behind the scenes? Yes, uh, it's a good story, actually. Um, as you say, I'm a British historian, and I have spent most of uh, every summer for the last 40 years in England researching one book or another. And through an extraordinary chain of circumstances, I wound up renting a room in the home of an elderly Russian woman. She was, I would say, 30 years older than I. And her name was Tanya Alexander. She died in 2009, age 90. Um, Tanya happens to have been the daughter of Mura Budberg, ah. who 
had been previously Mura von Benkendorf, who was married to a Russian diplomat, John von Benkendorf, but who became Bruce Lockhart's great love. And Tanya, Tanya had an extraordinary life of her own, but she never really escaped the shadow of her mother, who was even more extraordinary than Tanya. And in fact, probably even more extraordinary than Robert Hamilton, Bruce Lockhart. And there are several biographies of Mora. And Mora uh, had many love affairs and was probably the most important love of H.G. Wells's life. And people were always writing biographies of H.G. Wells, and Mora was always being, an, I'm sorry, and Tanya was always being annoyed at how her mother Mura was portrayed in those books. And so I got to know about Mura and about her extraordinary life and about the Lockhart plot because I was renting a room from Tanya in London. And, and that's how I came upon this plot and eventually decided to write a book about it. Well, man, that's, that story is, that origin story is almost as interesting as, as the plot itself, I have to say. So, well, I can tell you that Tanya told me many extraordinary stories. So, yes. So before we get to Mora, let us uh, take a look at Lockhart himself. And what intrigued me a little bit as I started to kind of dip into this was that some have compared him to T.E. Lawrence. Um, now, either that's a compliment or would drive someone who knows his story well like you nuts. Uh, which is it? You know, what, what are the defining things that, that, that make Lockhart an interesting character? And is it reasonable to compare him in some way to Lawrence? Yeah. Um, actually, I compared him to, to, to Lawrence. Well, I wrote a book go. about the Balfour Declaration, um, and in which uh, Lawrence uh, is an important um, subsidiary character. Um, the reason I made the comparison is that both Bruce Lockhart and T.E. Lawrence were sending back to Whitehall just the most extraordinary uh, reports. And the reason, in fact, why David Lloyd George chose Robert Hamilton, Bruce Lockhart to go back to Russia was because the reports he had written while he was a consul in Moscow had been so very, very good. Um, so the basis of comparison simply is during World War I, two extraordinarily brilliant young men in different parts of the British, uh, um, in, in different parts of the world, uh, sending reports back to London that are very, very good. But of course there are many differences. And in fact, Lawrence was a genuine, um, was genuinely unique. He was a one-off. Um, and Bruce Lockhart does not, ascend the same heights that that uh, T.E. Lawrence did. And I mean, maybe one of the reasons for that is that the, the Lockhart plot did not really work out as planned, where Lawrence was able to take some credit for developments uh, in the Middle East. But you're shaking your head. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a bit of a false assumption. It's not only that. It's that um, 
Lawrence, for, for whether you loved him or hated him, uh, a tortured individual, certainly, he stood for something. He had principles. The thing about uh, Lockhart um, is that he was an opportunist. And he knew, for example, that the Bolsheviks had the best chance to govern Russia, that the opposition to the Bolsheviks was weak, was divided, was um, not strong enough. Um, and that, in fact, Russia would have a better chance if the Bolsheviks uh, received British aid and somehow the British were able to smooth off some of the rough edges of early Bolshevism. And he went against his own, um, his own inclinations and principles when he realized that back in London, people wished the Bolsheviks were gone. So let's, um, let's take a moment to talk about that change that happens in terms of uh, the plot coming about. Um, how does that play out? Like, uh, how does he go about trying to start this new shift um, based, uh, as you say, on some degree of opportunism? He later sort of expressed some regrets as far as, uh, as, far as I recall. How does that shift occur? And then what happens to the, to the plot that in the end, it, it doesn't really work out? When Lockhart arrived in Russia, he really and truly believed that the best the best course for both Britain and Russia uh, was for Anglo-Bolshevik cooperation. Um, and he kept trying to persuade uh, Whitehall that that was the case. Um, but the hawks in Whitehall proved much stronger than the doves. And Lockhart began to realize that his... Um, exhortations to London to cooperate with Bolshevism were falling on deaf ears and in fact were jeopardizing his career. And his wife sent him a telegram warning him precisely of that. Um, and so little by little, he began to change his tune. And the way that that worked out is this. There were three ports in Russia that interested the Allies enormously. One was in the Far East, Vladivostok, but two others of a more immediate importance at the moment uh, were in the Northwest. One was Murmansk and one was Archangel. And there were lots and lots of supplies, um, including military supplies in those ports. And the British and the French were very worried that the Germans would invade Russia, and would take those ports. And so what they wanted was an invitation from the Bolsheviks to come into those ports in order to safeguard the materials there. And uh, what Lockhart kept saying at the beginning was, you'll get an invitation if you promise economic aid to the Russians. Um, but the British didn't want to do the economic aid. And then little by little, uh, the Russians began to realize that the Germans were not going to invade after all, because Ludendorff was going to bring all the men he could 
into one final assault on the Western Front. And so they began to lose interest in uh, uh, any kind of cooperation with the British and the French. Um, And at that point, Lockhart realized that uh, the British were going to invade those ports no matter what to protect those materials. Uh, And so he began trying to figure out how to ease the way into a kind of an invasion of Russia on the part of the Allies and especially the British. And of course, that led him to think, well, we're going to have to have help. um, So we should be in contact with anti-Bolsheviks. And then another of his colleagues was saying, well, in order to do this, we're going to have to destroy the Russian fleet in the Baltic. Um, And so little by little, they began moving towards the plot to overthrow the Bolsheviks in order to expedite this invasion. And then the invasion began to seem to them a way not merely to uh, safeguard material in the ports, but to to march further south, because you could go either towards Moscow or towards Petrograd uh, from Archangel. Uh, And so it turned into a full-blown plan for overthrowing the Bolsheviks. That is one heck of a mission creep, uh, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lockhart, he thought that that's what his masters in Whitehall wanted. But now the great challenge in writing the book is that um, there is no smoking gun evidence that the uh, men in Whitehall ever said to him, yes, we're going to march down from um, from Archangel south uh, and then take over Moscow and Petrograd. They never said that. Um, for public consumption, the line was that then they would rally uh, loyal Russians to the cause and they would march west to confront the Germans on the Eastern Front. They would reconstitute an Eastern Front. But Lockhart and all the conspirators were certain uh, that in fact, what they were going to do was overthrow the Bolsheviks once they got their troops uh, into the country. Now, uh, there's another element of this which you referred to in the, in the story of how you got to uh, write this book, and that's the story of Mora. Um, now, I have to admit, like a lot of uh, professional and amateur historians and fans of history out there generally, when I see romance attached to uh, a historical film or book, sometimes I get a little nervous. But it seems like uh, this story with, with Mura is quite, a, is quite a serious one. So can you tell us a bit more um, about that side of things? What's her role in, in the whole uh, story? She's, a, she's quite a significant figure. Yes. Um, yes. Um, in the end, I think she's a more formidable force than Lockhart himself. Um, uh, now, I might mention, by the way, that every single one of the Western um, men in Russia that I researched was having an affair with somebody while they were there. Um, but Lockhart's was far and away the most significant and the most um, uh, the most madly passionate. There's simply no doubt uh, that for both of them, 
it was the love affair that colored all their lives. Um, that said, Lockhart was a cad and a rogue, and he wound up for reasons of convenience, um, uh, jilting Mora, um, which did not stop them from maintaining uh, close relations for the rest of their lives. Uh, that's a more complicated story. Now, you're asking, why is Mora important? Um, for several reasons. Um, she had an extraordinary ability, as did Lockhart actually, to find and get to know and gain the trust of the most important people around. Um, and she enjoyed being at the center of everything. And therefore, um, rumors about her circulated all her life. And during this period, for example, uh, that she had been a spy for the Germans because her husband had been posted as a diplomat to Berlin, but then of course went back to Russia when the war began. And Mura ran a salon in which German expats congregated. Uh, so some people said she was a spy for the Germans. Some people said she was actually spying on the German expats for Kerensky with whom she was supposed to be having a love affair. Um, some people said that she spied for the Ukrainians. Um, some people said that she spied for the Bolsheviks on the Ukrainians. Some people said that she spied for Lockhart on the Bolsheviks. I think that that's not impossible. I do think, if, as I say in the book, that, but you, but this, but you, there are no, there's no smoking gun evidence for this. It's a, a matter of weighing what evidence there is and understanding as best you can the way these people thought and operated. Um, I think it is possible that Mura was approached by the Cheka, which was the Russian secret police then, um, to report back to them when she visited Ukraine, which was where she came from, where she was born. And she went there in 1918, in the spring of 1918. And I, th and, and I think it's possible that the Ukrainians tried to enlist her to report back to them whenever she came back to Ukraine from Russia uh, on what was happening with the Bolsheviks. Um, this is possible, tenuous, but possible. I think there is some evidence that she did agree to report back to the Bolsheviks on what was happening in the Ukraine because she, I think she may have told Lockhart that she was going to do that. And I think it possible, but that's all I'm saying, that Lockhart was glad for her to do it because it also gave him a window into how the Chaka worked because she was reporting to the Chaka. Okay, <clears throat> those are the most, of all the rumors, those are the ones that could conceivably be true, except for one more, which I think is almost certainly true, but which also cannot be proven. And it is this one. After the plot was busted and Lockhart and Mura were arrested, 
they were separated, and she was sent to a prison called Buterka, which is the, the Bastille of, of Moscow, um, and held under atrocious conditions. And then all of a sudden, the number two man of the Chaka, whose name was Yakov Peters, appeared at her cell. And the next thing she knew, she was out. And then the next thing we know is that she was able to supply Lockhart, who was still imprisoned in the Kremlin, actually, with all sorts of goodies that she could only purchase on the black market. And if she'd been caught doing that, I mean, people who did that were shot. The black market was illegal, obviously. Um, but she did it openly, and she brought the stuff that she got to the prison, and Yakov Peters would often be there. All right, so there was some arrangement. And what I think happened, but I cannot prove it, is that Yakov Peters said, we will release you, uh, and we'll spare your lover's life if you agree to work for us. And now the reason why that's plausible and not just something that I made up is that um, forever after, she was thought to be someone who worked for the Russian secret police. And two of her biographies have told the same, biographers have told the same story, which is that um, after Lockhart left her, she found her way into the home of Maxim Gorky, the greatest Russian writer of the period, who was a maverick, a, a leftist, but not a card-carrying Bolshevik. The Chakao wanted her to keep tabs on him and report back to them. But she fell under Gorky's sway. She once said that he was a world unto himself or a universe unto himself or something like that. And she confessed to him, and then he went to Lenin and said, tell the Chaka to lay off, and Lenin did tell the Chaka to lay off. That story appears in two other books. Finally, I know for a fact that Mura once said to the son of H.G. Wells, something along the following. I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but um, referring to the revolutionary period and to emergencies during the revolutionary period, to refuse to do what is necessary under such circumstances is to elect not to survive. And Mora was a survivor. Now, after all of that, let me say that I used to talk about this with Tanya before I was writing the book, <clears throat> but I knew these stories about her mother, about her mother being a spy for one of half a dozen different um, agencies. And I said, Tanya, was, do you think your mother was a spy? And Tanya said, no. <laughs> she said she liked people to think she was important and that she was a spy, but she was not a spy. So. There you go. Wow, that is that is how this became a book. Obviously, there's so many strands, uh, sort of interwoven. Um, right. The trick for the historian is not to make, not to say that he knows something is true when he doesn't, but only to lay out the the, the evidence such as it is, which is what I try to do in the book. And I think 
if I've if my impression so far is uh, correct, there, you know, th we can say with a bit more certainty why the group was busted, so to speak. Right. This is kind of how the plot um, ends. I suppose it would be interesting to think of you know, how it may have played out if if uh, they hadn't been arrested. But what happens there? Because this is related. This is kind of triggered by something that's doesn't have to do with the plot, right? By by a young Jewish woman. Um, oh, you mean the no? Not I, I understand what you're saying, um, but not quite. You're you're referring to the attempted assassination of Lenin by Fanny Kaplan, also called Dora Kaplan, um, which triggered the um, Chakas' response to the plot. Um, but the Chaka had, had um, penetrated the plot long before Fanny Kaplan tried to shoot Lenin, uh, did shoot Lenin, but failed to kill Lenin. Um, and that's another fantastic story for which read the book. But the essence of it is that once the, well, the Chaka knew that the Western powers were scheming with counter-revolutionaries and so was keeping a very close eye on them. <clears throat> and uh, also knew that the Westerners and Lockhart and another one of his allies named Captain Cromie, who was in Petrograd uh, and others, um, were interested specifically in the Latvian Rifle Brigade which had been the sort of Bolshevik Praetorian Guard. It was their most effective fighting force. Um, but the Latvians wanted to go home. And not only that, uh, many of them thought that the Bolsheviks had betrayed them when it signed the peace agreement with Germany that allowed the Germans to occupy Latvia. So Lockhart and his fellow conspirators had been trying to figure out a way to suborn the Latvian Rifle Brigade. So what the Chaka did, uh, led by Felix Dzerzhinsky, another extraordinary figure, is they sent as bait as several Latvians who belonged to the Chaka, but who were posing as disaffected Latvian army officers. Um, and the specific um, enticement was this. The British had by now landed troops in Murmansk. They had marched down to Archangel. They were occupying that part of high northwest Russia. And everybody knew they were coming. They were going to be marching south. And everybody knew they'd be trying to overthrow the regime. Although the British were saying what they were going to do was march and take the Germans from the east. Um, and everybody knew that Lenin would send the Latvian Rifle Brigade to stop them. So what these uh, Latvian Chaka agents told Lockhart was that if you, speaking for the Western powers, will promise an independent Latvia after the war, we will stand aside when General Poole marches south from Archangel. 
so that he can do whatever he needs to do. And from that, it went even further. We will help you as Lockhart began developing the, the plot, which included capturing Lenin and Trotsky at a meeting of the Bolsheviks scheduled first for September 7th and then later for September 14th, and for uprisings in Petrograd and uprisings in Moscow. Uh, we'll help you, the Latvians said with that stuff. But all the while they were reporting to Zerzhinsky. So Zerzhinsky knew what the plot was. But when Fanny Kaplan shot Lenin on the night of August, uh, the evening of August 31, I think it is, and also earlier that day, um, uh, a young poet and former cadet officer um, had shot and in fact killed Moise Yuritsky, who was the head of the Chika in Petrograd, then Zerzhinsky said to himself, the plot has begun, the Lockhart plot has begun. We thought we had it under control. In fact, they're ahead of us. And so the shooting of Lenin and of Yuritsky is what triggers the busting of the plot. And, I, and you were referring to, to the shooting by uh, of of Lenin by Catherine. yeah right because this is this is one of the things that sort of as you as you said right spurs them to take action and go ahead and say all right you know we are enough is enough so to speak and and it's over but Kaplan was not you know working on behalf of uh, or connected to Lockhart as far as I understand almost certainly not almost certainly not um, there um, I mean I can go into it I, I don't mean to be taking up time with details, but Lockhart and the other conspirators did have connections with the socialist revolutionaries, and Dora Kaplan belonged to the socialist revolutionaries. Even so, there is no credible evidence that, that uh, they were connected to the Lockhart plot. Right. There is no shortage of uh, complications here. And I mean, when we did our We've done numerous episodes on our um, online YouTube documentary series about the Great War and it's sort of all the conflicts that spun out of it, including the Russian Revolution and, and civil wars. And we've done a whole bunch of episodes about Russia and the former parts of the empire. And they've been a real challenge to do because, of course, it's a very complex conflict. And we haven't even touched the level of complexity that's going on with some of these uh, behind the scenes activities that that you've dealt with in the book and you've uh, been telling us about today let us for a moment perhaps speculate a little bit about what might have been so to speak so obviously the lockhart plot you know it stopped before uh, lockhart can kind of continue it to where he had planned to or was hoping to, did it have a real chance at achieving something? Uh, because what I, what I wonder when I'm hearing all this is I'm more familiar with, you know, the, the higher level British decisions and policy and the military presence and the American military presence in, in Russia as well. But, you know, would something have come from this? Did he have... Was the plan sort of workable? And did he have the right, let's say, role in British policy to make it happen? Well, <laughs> that's the crux. Um, I call it a turning point 
that didn't turn, that failed to turn. Um, <laughs> but I mean, being it, this is a, it, it's a it's an almost impossible question to add, uh, to answer. Um, on the one hand, Zerzhinsky and the Chika penetrated the plot, so you could say once that happened, the plot was doomed. Okay, that's on on the one side. And uh, if it's a seesaw, or as the English call it, a teeter-totter, I don't know what you say in, in, in Germany and in Austria, um, that's a very heavy weight on one side. <clears throat> it was penetrated. They knew what was happening. On the other side, they really did have a lot of plans. Uh, they worked them out pretty carefully. The Latvian Rifle Brigade was only one part of it. Mind you, it was a critical part. But they, if they had gotten to different Latvian officers instead of the ones that Zerzhinsky dangled before them, it's not so clear that the plot could not have succeeded. They had worked out a lot of stuff uh, having to do with, you know, transporting cannons um, east along a railway from you know, somewhere near the border, they, uh, border they, they knew where the czar's gold was located in trains, in train stations that they were going to um, use in order to fund the government to begin with. They, um, they had very cynically um, been destroying food and crops and, and so on and so forth, but simultaneously stockpiling it elsewhere so that people would think, that the Bolsheviks couldn't feed them, but that the new regime could. Uh, they had a lot of stuff worked out, um, but they were up against the best counter conspirator of all time, which was Zerzhinsky. Um, so on that seesaw, that teeter-totter, probably it didn't have a chance, but these were very serious, tough men on the other side who had a plan that they thought could work. And that plan, uh, even though it didn't work, obviously makes for a fascinating story within the already complicated and fascinating story of the, of the revolution. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Schneer, for joining us today and for sort of peeling off some of those onion skin layers of, uh, of some of the behind the scenes stuff uh, that was going on in Russia, because there's no end to unraveling all of that. Uh, for our listeners who might be now wanting to know more, wanting to uh, get their hands on the book, we're going to put some links in the description under the podcast when it gets posted on all the different platforms. So for the, those of you listening out there, uh, check out the description if you're interested in getting a copy of the book. So I have to say this was a, a largely new page for me in the story of the Russian Civil War, which I previously mostly saw, I guess, at a bird's eye uh, view following the political and military developments. And uh, so I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I, uh, I learned a lot from it. Well, thank you again for inviting me, and I enjoyed our discussion very much. <laughs>